I'm sure my microphone is good. All right, what does faithfulness look like? You can see that's our sermon title, so maybe that's where we're going with this passage this morning. But what does faithfulness look like? If you could put a face or a name to faithful, what might that look like? Uh, one idea, one person you might be able to think of, were you to look it up, is a lady named Viola Cochran, and she holds the Guinness Book of World Records for the most volunteer hours served. She served over 77,000 hours at her local hospital in Sladell, Louisiana. It opened in 1959, and she volunteered there every single day until she retired on March 31st, 2012. She was 89 years old when she finally said she was going to retire and no longer be volunteering. That's a long, long time to be faithfully serving in one place volunteering. The colleagues that worked with her said that she was a wonderful example of what it means to give back to the community, and she gave so much to so many through her volunteer hours. She'll always be remembered as a volunteer that you could always count on for being there every day. That's faithful. And it says that her first responsibility as a volunteer when the hospital first opened, the first patient they had was a lady giving birth, and her first job was to bring her a glass of water. So that's being faithful faithful for the long haul. And I hope that each of us can say that we've been faithful for the long haul as well. And here we have a list of people that Paul is ending out this letter. He's finishing out the letter to the Colossians, and there's a bunch of different people he wants to greet. He wants to say thank you to because they've been faithful to him, most of them. We'll take a look at the, the one who didn't. But all these different people that he wants to greet as he finishes out this letter. So we're going to be looking at 10 through 18, and first, we're going to look at verses 10 through 11. He has some fellow Jews that he's been working alongside. Here's what that says, Colossians 4, 10 through 11. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you've received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. So first we have these three men. They're Jews that are working alongside Paul, and they have been a great comfort to him as he's been serving the only Jews that have come alongside him in building up the kingdom of God. There are other Jews around him. There are other Jews that are serving uh, in the area, but they've not been an encouragement to him. One of the themes of Colossians has been false teachers, and the Judaizers, as we might call them, were part of those false teachers that were coming into the church at Colossae and coming into many of the young churches, and they were trying to lead these young churches astray by adding uh, traditions of the elders and Judaic teaching that no longer needed to be relevant for these young churches, for these believers in Jesus, who he paid the price he paid the debt. There's nothing more that they needed to do to be able to earn their salvation in any way except, except the free gift that Christ offered through his sacrifice on the cross. But these Judaizers were coming along saying, but you have to do this too, and you have to observe this, and you have to do this. So there were other Jews that were around Paul and around these local churches, but they weren't an encouragement to him. These guys were. These were the only three that were a help and an encouragement to him. They were helping him there in prison while he was there sending letters. He was encouragement, and they were an encouragement to those churches. And the first man that's mentioned is Aristarchus. 
He's the first guy that's mentioned here. He's a Gentile. He's coming from Macedonia. And we first see Aristarchus showing up in the book of Acts, chapter 19, verse 29, and he's right in the middle of a riot. So Paul has been in Ephesus at this point of the book of Acts. He's been there approximately two years. And while he's been there, he's been daily going and presenting the gospel, the good news of Jesus, to the Ephesian people. Those that, they're very religious people. They worship primarily the goddess Diana, or Artemis was another translation of that. That's who they worship primarily. And Paul was going daily and reasoning with them, teaching them. So the Bible says that at one point, everybody in that part of the world had come to hear about who Jesus was. They obviously didn't all believe, but Paul had been doing this every single day for a long time. So things started to change. People started to trust in Jesus as their Savior. As they trusted in Jesus as their Savior, they had no need anymore for the idols that they would have had of Artemis. They would have had no need for those magic books that they would have kept that would have been part of that worship. So we see in Acts, they're bringing those books out into the street and they're burning them, mass burnings of these books and these writings. And it's starting to cause quite a stir because now you have these tradesmen that are coming out saying, hey, we're going to lose our business here. This is this area. Everybody worships Artemis, but we're about to lose all of our livelihood because of this Christianity, because of this Paul. So a riot starts. They go into the arena and they drag in Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. Aristarchus is one of them. Wasn't God's timing yet. Obviously, he didn't die because we see him later on, but it could have gotten really, really bad, except that God's hand was obviously there working. And one of the city officials steps up and says, whoa, we got we to gotta stop this. If we don't stop rioting, we're going to have the Romans on top of us, and we're going to end up being charged with a riot. So God keeps them safe there in that setting, but Aristarchus travels with Paul in a lot of different dangerous things. He's very faithful to Paul in the good times and in the bad times. We see Aristarchus as being one of those men that travels with Paul to Rome. Uh, Paul is arrested in Jerusalem. He's out there in front of the temple. The Jews start causing a riot of their own. They're about to kill Paul, but the Romans step in thinking they're taking away this criminal. And after we read the account of what happens there in Acts, we find out that uh, they find out Paul's not a criminal. He's a Roman citizen. They can't just throw him in prison and beat him. They have to find out why. But then he appeals to Caesar, so they have to send him to Caesar, even though he's not actually done anything. And they recognize he's not actually done anything to deserve punishment in prison but he has to now go to Caesar. So Aristarchus is one of those guys that goes with him, and they end up being shipwrecked in that fateful trip to Rome. But he's a very faithful man. He stays with Paul. He's the kind of guy that you want to be on your team because he's going to stay faithful through the thick, through the thin, through the good, through the bad. Aristarchus is one of those faithful guys. He's an encouragement to Paul. We also have John Mark. So in here, he's called Mark, but we know him as John Mark, having both a Jewish and a Roman name. That was fairly common in that day, that they had a Jewish and a Roman name. So John would have been his Jewish, Mark would have been his Roman name. And we know him as the one who wrote the book of Mark. He wrote the book of Mark. And here Paul is saying that if he comes to you, you've heard of him. He's the cousin of Barnabas. If he comes to you, welcome him. But we also know a little bit more about this Mark because he wasn't always faithful. 
In order to understand Mark a little bit more, we got to know and remember a little bit about Barnabas. So some of you remember Barnabas very well as the one who was known as the a son of encouragement. He was extremely encouraging. That's what his name means. He was one of those early uh, leaders within the local church, within the young church, and he was going out on missionary journeys. The Ethiopian treasurer is one of those stories that we remember. That was one of the first stories that ever taught in CEF so, so, so many summers and years ago now. I don't know how many years ago that would have been, but a while ago. But Barnabas was in that early church, one of those leaders. And after Saul, who then we know as Paul, had come to know Christ after that conversion on the road to Damascus, not everybody naturally wanted Paul to be around. So for a period of time, Paul kind of went, Uh, into the background. He wasn't seen, but it was Barnabas who came and found him. And Barnabas brought him along and encouraged him and built him up and brought him to the local church. And then Paul and Barnabas together were traveling around on behalf of the Jewish council, on behalf of the disciples, going and teaching these young churches, these new believers. So Paul and Barnabas were a team. They were a missionary team traveling together. And at one point they're being sent out and they bring John Mark with them. Barnabas's cousin. So they bring John Mark, and, and he's on those journeys with them until he's not, until he decides he's going to desert them. Whether it got too hard, whether it got dangerous, maybe he just decided that wasn't for him, and he gave up. But John Mark leaves them. So here they are traveling, just the two of them again, Paul and Barnabas, and we come to a point in, in Acts where they're going to go on another one of these journeys, and Barnabas wants to bring John Mark along this time. Paul says, no way. We're not bringing John Mark. He deserted us last time. Let's bring Silas. So they start arguing, and the Bible says that there's such a dispute that arose between them that they split ways. Paul took Silas, and Barnabas took John Mark with him. And we see that God used that in a very incredible way to be able to build this young church there in Acts, but it split them because Paul didn't trust John Mark to go with them. But here we are now. He says, you know, you've heard about him. He's the cousin of Barnabas. If he comes to you, welcome him. Doesn't say anything about the fact that this is the John Mark who at one point deserted me. Doesn't say anything about the fact that this John Mark was very faithless at one point. Just like we looked at Onesimus and Tychicus last week and saw the transformative work of Christ in their lives and how they were very different and Onesimus very obviously different as a result of the transformative life of Christ. But Paul never mentions that in his letter. He never says what happened to Onesimus before. He just talks about who he was in Christ now. We don't see any of John Mark's backstory because he's been transformed. He's been changed. Where he was faithless before, now he's found faithful, and the church ought to welcome him as he's coming to them. It's a good reminder to us that maybe at one point in our lives we were serving very faithfully, and we, were doing, we felt we were doing a good job being faithful to serve where God had placed us for the purpose he had for us. But somewhere in there, we fell away. Maybe not, you know, maybe we didn't give up the faith or anything like that, but we no longer were serving the Lord faithfully as we once did. Maybe things got busy, life got in the way. Things got a little bit crazy. So somehow we backed away from serving, and we weren't serving faithfully anymore. We've kind of just, you know, t- taken a back seat when maybe we shouldn't have had a back seat. This is a reminder to us that it doesn't matter where, where we have stepped away from being faithful, we can come back and be faithful again. John Mark had that past. He had that backstory, and he was faithless, but now he's being found faithful. 
And for us, we can step back into serving the Lord too. Or maybe we took a back seat for a while when we shouldn't, shouldn't have. We can step back and say, Lord, I want to be faithful again. I want to be used by you. I want to take up my cross, give up my rights to myself, because I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price. I'm yours, and I want to be found faithful. John Mark was found faithful, and he was to be welcomed by the churches. You and I can be found faithful and be of use to the Lord in the work that he has and encourage the church that he's placed us in. God has a purpose and a place for us. Jesus Justice is another man that's mentioned as a part of this, these three men, these three Jews that were great encouragement to Paul. We don't know a whole lot about Jesus Justice. Again, two names, so his Jewish name and his Roman name. Jesus would have been a very common Jewish name, or uh, uh, Joshua would have been the other, the Old Testament rendering of Jesus. So very common name, but also had his Roman name. So we know his name. We know he was a Jew. We know he was a great encouragement to Paul, but we really, really don't know anything else about him. He doesn't show up anywhere else in Scripture. We don't know anything else that happened to him. All we know is that he was an encouragement to Paul and that he was faithful. And that's a great reminder for us that even if you're one of those people that not a lot is known about how you're serving, but you are faithfully serving in the background. You're not one of those people that stands up here in front and everybody sees you and everybody knows how you serve and everybody knows what your job and your responsibility is. Maybe you're just one of those quiet people that's faithfully serving day after day, week after week. Nobody sees, nobody really knows, but God knows. And you are so, so, so important to the life of this church. We don't know a whole lot about Jesus' justice but he was of great encouragement to Paul and of great encouragement then to those churches. Maybe you're one of those people that is cleaning toilets in the middle of the week. Nobody sees you doing it. Sweeping the floors, putting communion out each week and we show up and it's just, or each month and it's just there ready to go. Nobody sees that. Not everyone knows that. But you're a part of this church and you're so vital to seeing the life of this church function as it should. And I think someday we're going to get to heaven and we're going to find heaven just packed with people like Jesus Justice and those quiet people that just are faithfully serving. And nobody knew just exactly what it was they were doing, but they were doing things that were essential and they just didn't want the spotlight. They didn't want people to know. And I could start naming names, but you don't want me to do that because you enjoy just serving quietly and faithfully in the background. The one person that did immediately come to mind was Skip Willis. There are so many different pieces all through this church that just have his fingerprints all over it, just faithfully serving. One of those quiet people that's in the background being faithful. That's what Jesus' justice was, faithfully serving, encouraging Paul in the work. One of the only Jews, one of three, that was building up the kingdom of God alongside Paul, being faithful. Maybe that's you this morning, one of those quiet people that's faithfully serving. So thank you for what you're doing. Couldn't be doing this work without you. Wouldn't be the same kind of church were it not for you. So Paul had some faithful and uh, fellow Jews that he worked with. He also had some fellow Gentiles, fellow Gentiles, faithful Gentiles that worked with him. And we're going to look at verses 12 through 14. 12 through 14, here's what that says. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. 
For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. So we had those Jews that were working alongside Paul. Here's a list of Gentiles that are working with him. And the Gentiles are special to Paul. The Jews are special. They're his countrymen. But the Gentiles were special because he had a special calling to go reach them. And they had a special opportunity then, because of the gospel, to be welcomed into somewhere where before they were excluded. They couldn't go to the temple and worship because they were Gentiles. They were excluded by who they were, and they were excluded by their sin. They could not get to God. They couldn't get into that temple. They were excluded. But through Jesus, through the gospel, that curtain that separated the, holies of hol- the Holy of Holies was torn in two. We had access to God through faith, through the work of Jesus Christ. Now these Gentiles, at one point who were alienated and hostile in mind, separated from God, now are able to Jesus Christ, brought into the family of God, welcomed in as part of his family through the work of Jesus Christ as they accepted that free gift of salvation. They found themselves no longer excluded, but now joint heirs with Christ. That's awesome. They were able to experience Christ in them, the hope of glory, as we see in Colossians 1, I think it's 27. What an awesome opportunity for these Gentiles then to work alongside Paul, to be able to encourage those other Gentile churches that are just getting started to continue to grow in their faith and in then their action and how they're living out that new faith in Jesus. And it was Epaphras who we believe first brought the gospel to them both to the church here in Colossae, but then in Laodicea and Hierapolis as well. So you can see up here on this map, I don't have a little laser pointer, but it's kind of there towards the center. You can see Colossae and Laodicea and Hierapolis kind of in a line there together. Three cities, very close. Paul says that uh, Epaphras is one of them, so he's Colossian, but he's from that area. He's from that home area, and he's praying for these churches He's praying for them intently, struggling on their behalf, working hard in his prayers for them. Because prayer is hard. How many of you find prayer very easy? I didn't think anybody would really raise their hand because it's not terribly easy to pray. The more you do it, it's like anything. The more you do it, the more you're able to continue to do it faithfully. And you hear stories of those people who wore out, you know, the floorboards where they knelt every morning to pray. But that started with a struggle. Prayer's hard. It's difficult at times to get our brains centered around the idea of now I'm going to talk to God. I'm going to, I'm going to exclude everything else that would distract me and push me away from praying and talking to him. And I'm just going to focus on prayer and the things that he's laid on my heart to be praying for. When I get up in the morning, I have my big green chair that I sit in with my cup of coffee and my Bible. And I sit there and try to pray. And so many mornings, it's so hard, especially now that the sun's coming up earlier. I put the shades up and then there's birds and squirrels and all kinds. So it's hard to keep my brain focused on just praying for the things that are at hand. Sometimes it's easier to just open my Bible and start reading. And I can, you know, I can focus a little easier on the words in front of me. But prayer's often hard. Prayer's hard because it's through prayer that we become more like Jesus. Because when we see our prayers answered, we praise God and say, here's what he did, and we learn a little bit more about him and how he's working. When he doesn't answer our prayers in the way that we're hoping to, so often the change isn't in our circumstances, but the change is within us. He's making us more like his son. And Satan doesn't want that to happen. So prayer's going to be difficult. 
Erwin Lutzer talks about how when you go to pray, write down a list of all the things that come to your mind, the things you need to get done for the day, because it's often then you're going to remember those things, because Satan's going to bring those up and try to distract you. But you can use that to your advantage, and now you have a list of everything that needs to get done, and you can move on to praying, because you've written them all down. Prayer's hard. It's hard work. You're going into the throne room of God on behalf of others and on behalf of yourself. It's hard work. And Epaphras is struggling on their behalf. He's working hard for them. But what's he praying for them? He's not just saying, Lord, be with so-and-so in Colossae. Please be with so-and-so in Laodicea. He's not just praying those, those you know, Lord, be with uh, uh, Alistair Begg talks about the so-and-sos that we're praying for and the be-withs in his book, Pray Big. And he talks about wanting to get the be-withs out of his prayers because he said too often those sneak in there, the be-withs. But he says, if I can only get my brain to focus around prayer for so long, I want it to be filled up with words that matter and praying for things that are important, praying for the spiritual before I'm praying for the practical. And he talks about why would we spend, if we're having a hard time focusing on prayer, why would we spend so much time asking God to do something that he already said he would do and has already started to be doing in that person's life? He said, I'll be with you always. So we don't have to ask him to be with people. So what do we focus on then when we're praying? How do we bring our mind into a focus on praying for those things that really matter for people? Well, Epaphras is doing that here. He's praying for things that really matter in their lives. Here's what he's praying for them. He's praying first that they might stand. He wants them to be secure, to be well-grounded on Christ and on his word, not tossed to and fro by the waves of different teaching or doctrine or whatever else is around, but grounded and standing firm on God and on his word. He's also praying for them that they might be mature in their understanding of Christ, mature in him, an understanding of the full assurance of the will of God, mature in that, growing in that. As new believers, they needed the milk of God's word. The Bible describes those, those teachings as the milk of God's word, those introductory things to get us started, just like a little baby needs milk to get started. But as they're growing, as they're maturing, they move on to solid food. They move on to bigger things, meatier things, and they continue to grow. If they were to stay just on milk, they wouldn't be growing as they should be. So they need, they need more. They need meatier, heavier things so that they might mature and grow. As believers, we need to move through those introductory things. They're part of us growing, but then we need to get in and mature in our understanding of God and His understanding of His Word. And when we grow in our understanding of God and His Word, then we can understand and have a full assurance of the will of God. And we find that understanding in the full assurance of the will of God as we understand His Word. So he's praying for them they might stand, they might be mature, they might understand the full assurance of the will of God for their lives that's found in his word. They might know God greater. They might know him well. And Epaphras knows that prayer is oh so important for the health of the church. It's oh so important for him as a leader, even from afar, but it's oh so important for those young churches and those elders that would have been placed in charge of those churches that maybe he got started, but then he left to go back to be with Paul. He's got to be praying with them. There's a story of, of Spurgeon. 
uh, that old-time preacher who had so many people that would come listen to him, and a group of ministers were said to have come, and they wanted to see his church. They wanted to see that enormous place that he was preaching in, so he brought them into the sanctuary. There's one person's idea of what that might have looked like inside. We can see the building, I believe, still, um, but there it is packed out, and often that's how it was when Spurgeon was preaching. Just the building was packed out. And these, these ministers came, and they wanted to find out, you know, all about the building, all about him. So he showed them the sanctuary, and then he asked them, would you like to see the boiler room? Well, they didn't really come to see the boiler room. They came to see, you know, the building and see the ministry and all that's going on. And they declined. He said, no, no, no. You want to see the boiler room. So they didn't. So, okay. They followed him down to the basement. And the story goes, he opened up the door to the boiler room, which in the boiler room, that's where the power for the building comes. That's where the heat for the building comes. Uh, that's where all the inner workings of the church are, or the building. So they opened up the door to the boiler room, and as the story goes, there were over 100 people in there praying. That's where the power of the church was coming from, was the people praying. That was the boiler room. And people would ask him later on, what's the key to your success in your ministry? And he always told people, it's because people are praying for me. Epaphras knew the power of prayer in the life of the church, and he was praying for this church, for Colossae, but also praying for Laodicea and Hierapolis, even so very far away, still being intent in his prayer for them. So we have Epaphras, but we also have Luke. Luke's there working with Paul. We remember Luke. Luke is the one who wrote the book of Luke. He also wrote the book of Acts. So he wrote those two, but he's known as the beloved physician. He was a doctor, very well-learned man. He probably could have made a lot of money working on his own, doing something separate from Paul. But he traveled with Paul. He was very faithful to travel with Paul, just as Aristarchus was. He traveled with Paul through the good stuff and through the hard stuff. He was with Paul as they were on that ship going to Rome, and he was traveling with him. He went through that shipwreck. He went through all those trials that Paul and Aristarchus and so many other guys that were traveling with him went through as well. And he could have walked away. He could have gotten a great job when they got there to Rome and just kind of did his own thing, but he stayed with Paul. He continued to work with him, faithfully serving alongside him, even when it got difficult. And we find out in 2 Timothy that it's only Luke that is left with Paul. Everybody else has either deserted him or they've gone off on different missionary journeys, gone to different churches, delivering letters, or coming back from churches. It's only Luke that's left. He's the only one there, faithfully staying with him. Now, that's in contrast to the next person that's in this sentence. Luke is in the same sentence as Demas. Some of you know who Demas is. And growing up in church, I'd heard the name Demas, and I'd always associated the name Demas with the one who walked away from Paul, who deserted Paul and walked away and was in love with this present world, Paul says. And he walks away and deserts Paul. So when I was studying this again, you know, I'd read through it and read through it and studied the book. And several months ago, as I'm looking at these different names, I had to go back through and make sure this was the same Demas. Sometimes you end up with people with the same name, just, but a different person, just a similar name um, mentioned elsewhere. But this is the same Demas. And in Philemon, he's mentioned as Paul's fellow worker. He's ministering alongside Paul. He's his fellow minister working with him. But then in the same sentence, he's just Demas. And then in 2 Timothy, we find out that he's deserted Paul. 
He's walked away from the work. Whether he deserted Christ entirely, we don't, we don't know for certain, but he at least walked away from Paul and left him. And Paul says he left because he was in love with this present world. He loved the world more than he loved the work of serving Jesus. And that ought to put a certain kind of chill down your spine to hear that phrase, loved, he was in love with this present world. Because if we're not careful, that sentence could describe any one of us. If we're not careful to love Jesus and love his word more than anything else, doesn't matter which ministry it is that he's called us to serve in. That's not really the point of what Paul is saying there. Because we can serve God in all kinds of different ways according to the different gifts and abilities he's given us as part of the body. But do you love Jesus more than you love the world? Do you love his word more than you love the world? Or could that someday be said of you that he was in love with this present world? That's a scary thought. And that doesn't just happen like that. It doesn't just happen that one morning Demas woke up and said, eh, I think I'm going to give up on following Jesus or I'm going to give up on serving with Paul. It would have been slow little decisions all along the way to finally get to that point where he says, I don't think I can do this anymore and just gives up and deserts Paul. So we have to watch ourselves. We have to be oh so careful to remain faithful, to not love this world more than we love Christ, to make sure that he's got the right place in our hearts and in our lives, the right order of how we are living our everyday life is showing that I love him more than I love anything else. And we might be found faithful because this is a warning to us then to be faithful where he was faithless and loved the world more. We need to be faithful and love him more than anything else that this world has to offer. Because without Christ, we have nothing. Without Christ, we have nothing. When things got hard, Luke stayed faithful. When things got hard, Demas was faithless. Two guys, same sentence, two very different outcomes. So be faithful. Along with Luke and those other Gentiles that were faithful, there's also a faithful church that Paul addresses here in verse 15 through 17. He says, Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you, and, and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. So this church in Laodicea, the believers that are there, this last group that he's wanting to greet, this last group of people he wants to say hi to. And it says brothers, it can mean brothers and sisters. That's often the right way to be able to translate that word. So brothers and sisters, we already saw early on as Paul was addressing this church to the believers that are in Colossae. So those brothers and sisters, this would have included children too. I always love this about the book of Colossians where he addresses kids directly in the letter. So they're part of the brothers and sisters here. He's addressing the children that are there as well. So greeting them that are there in Nympha's house. So she had a home church that was meeting right there in her house. Nymphas might show up in your translation. So there's a little bit of discrepancy there, whether it should be Nympha or Nymphas. Nympha is how it's translated most often, but it's a church that's meeting in her home. And that would have been a way that many churches got started, was meeting in somebody's house. Because at that time, especially in the Roman world, Christianity was just a sect. It wasn't accepted. It wasn't an accepted religion. Eventually it would be, but they wouldn't have been able to just get a meeting space super easily. 
they would have had to meet wherever they could, and that would have been quite often in somebody's home. Churches get started all the time uh, today as well in people's homes. So a church plant might start in somebody's house. So the church is meeting in Nympha's home. And as they are reading the letter, Paul says to you and Colossae, as you read this letter, pass on that letter to the Laodiceans as well. So pass that on to them. And when they finish their letter, they're going to pass on their letter to you. And you're to read that letter. So then that begs the question, what is that letter? We have the one here to the Colossians, and we know what they're to pass on to Laodicea, but what did Laodicea have that they were supposed to pass on to the Colossian church? Well, there's a thought that perhaps some scholars believe it could have been the book of Ephesians. might have been a circular letter that was to be going around the churches in the area. It's one thought. Another thought was that Paul wrote a whole other letter to the Laodiceans. He wrote a letter to them, it went to that church, and then we lost it. We don't know where it went. We can't find that letter. That's another thought that theologians and scholars have, that maybe we lost a letter that Paul had sent out. Another thought is that maybe the, the Laodiceans themselves wrote a letter, and they were supposed to pass that on to the church at Colossae, and then the Colossians were supposed to read it. Obviously, it was important enough that Paul said that you should read it, but here's what we need to know about it, because scholars aren't totally set on exactly what that letter was. But we can be certain that it wasn't something that we needed to have in our Bible this morning. We can be 100% confident that what we have right here before us is the Word of God as He intended us to have it, whatever that letter might have actually been. This is the Word of God for us today. There's not some hidden letter out there. There's not some other uh, bit of knowledge about God that we might have found out if we just had that letter. And if we find it someday, we're going to find out some huge revelation about God. It's not going to be the case. We're never going to find another piece of letter written by Paul or anyone else that should have been in here. Whatever is here is what God intended us to have for Scripture, for His Word. And we're going to look at two Scriptures that helps us to understand that. The first is Isaiah 55, 10 through 11. Isaiah 55, 10 through 11. It's going to be important for us to understand that this morning. Here's what that says. Verse 10. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. What God's saying through Isaiah there is that the rain and the snow goes out, it waters the earth, through it watering the earth, it accomplishes its purpose to bring growth, to bring life, and then bring food to those who are planting it, and then are able to eat of that fruit that is grown. It accomplishes what it goes forward to do, even more so. God's word goes out as he intends it to, and his word does not return void. His word goes out, and it will accomplish the purpose that he has for it. He has a purpose, and nothing will stop that. Nothing will change that. It will accomplish the purpose that he sets for it. It can't be lost. It can't be changed. It can't be disregarded. It can't become irrelevant. It will accomplish the purpose that he has set for it because his word is eternal. It cannot change. It cannot be lost because God has a purpose for it. And if God has a purpose for it because he is God, it will not fail. It will succeed. It will not return void. 
If we look at Psalm 119, verse 89, that's another verse that's helpful for us to remember. It says, forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Forever, your word is firmly fixed. Nothing's going to change that. There's nothing else that we can find that will ever change the truth of God's word. There's nothing else that we can ever discover that will change the truth of God's word. It will never be taken away. It'll never become void. It will never become irrelevant. It is firmly fixed in the heavens. And we can know for certain that what we have right here in our Bibles this morning is what God intended us to have as his word. If he intended us to have it and to know it and to understand it, whatever that letter to Laodicea is, it would be in here. If it's not in here, then it wasn't essential for us to know. We can trust that this is God's word. So we don't actually know what that letter was. We don't know what exactly it contained, but we know that this is for us. And we know that the Colossian church was to read that letter when it came to them. And finally, we have Archippus. Archippus is the last person that's mentioned here. We mentioned him last week as very likely being the son of Philemon and Aphia. He might have been the elder that was put in charge of that church that met there in their home. So he might have been the elder in charge. That was a very common pattern that Paul had, and then those young pastors that served under Paul had, is that Paul would get a church started, and then he would put somebody in charge, and then they might move on to a new church, get another church going, but they would leave an elder or another young pastor in charge of that church. And it might be that Archippus is that young pastor, that's there. And Paul is telling them, encourage Archippus. Encourage him to fulfill the ministry that he's been given in the Lord. And this is very similar to what Paul says to Timothy. He tells Timothy to fulfill your ministry, fulfill the ministry that he's been given by God. So perhaps Archippus is in a very similar spot to Timothy, where Timothy had such a hard church and was a young man, and Paul had to encourage him, don't let anyone despise your youth. Maybe Archippus was in the same spot. So many different voices, so many different teachings trying to come in and corrupt this young church and take away the truth of God's word and choke it with all kinds of other traditions. It says, fulfill the ministry that you have. Fulfill the ministry from the Lord that you have. And the young church is to encourage him in that, to fulfill that calling that God has placed on his life. Paul says that what's desired of a steward is that, be, that they be found faithful. That's in 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2. And Archippus is a steward of this young church. He's to be found faithful. I'm to be found faithful, me and Mark, as pastors, and then the elders, as leaders of this church, were to be found faithful. So just as this young church was to be encouraging their leaders to fulfill the ministry and be faithful. Keep encouraging us to fulfill the ministry and be faithful. You do an excellent job at encouraging us to do that, but keep doing that. Finally, Paul comes to the end of his letter. Verse 18 says this, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Finally, he comes to the end of his letter and he signs off. And this was his common way of signing off his letter, something very similar to this. And I found when I was working for CEF and I would write donor notes, I'd type one out, but then I always wrote a little handwritten note at the end. And if you received any of my letters over the years of working in CEF, you might have noticed a pattern that they all started kind of sound the same when you got to the end because I just had a similar way of signing it. 
And if you kept track of those letters, you might say, wait a minute, he wrote the same thing last time. Uh, I thought through it. It just, you got to a pattern of this is what I want to say. This really sums up how I feel about this letter. So it was similar often at the end. Paul had a similar way of ending his letters. And some of this was for authenticity. Some of this was to make sure that people would know this is actually from him. So he says, I write this greeting with my own hand. It might have been that other people were trying to send out letters in Paul's name, saying things that really weren't true. But he's saying, this is how you can know in 2 Thessalonians three seventeen through 18. He says, this is how you can know. This is my mark of authenticity, that this is from me. I wrote this part. So you can know that this is from Paul. Somebody else didn't write this, I did. And then in Galatians 6.11, he says, paraphrasing, see with what large letters I write. So he had a scribe he would have used that was very common in that day. And then we know Paul used a scribe because some of his other letters, we have a greeting from so-and-so who wrote the letter. So Paul used a scribe, but he wrote this part on his own. He wrote this himself. He said, this is a mark of authenticity that you know that I wrote this letter. Somebody else didn't write this. Then he says, remember my chains. He doesn't say this looking for sympathy. He says this to remind them of this is the cost. He's not looking for sympathy. Paul doesn't need people's sympathy. But this church needs to remember this is what it might cost you to follow Jesus. This is what the outcome might be. Here I am in prison. You might be in prison. It might be even worse for you. This is the cost, but it's worth it. It's worth it to follow Jesus. Remember my chains. And he wraps everything up with a little sentence, grace be with you. What a great way to be able to end this letter. Grace be with you. This church, this church here, we would have nothing were it not for the grace of Jesus. We would have nothing were it not for the grace of God. By grace, the gospel came to them who once were alienated, totally excluded by the fact that they were Gentiles from being able to come to God. But by God's grace, the gospel came. By God's grace, Jesus made a way that they might be saved, that they might have access to God through faith, through Jesus Christ. They might be welcomed into his family as children of God. By grace, then, that transformative life of Christ works in them and works through them and is seen then by others. That's God's grace in their lives. That's God's grace in our lives as we've accepted Christ as our Savior, His life working in us, His life working through us. And apart from Christ, apart from His grace, we have nothing. So what a great way to be able to end out this letter as we think about all those different themes that were a part of this, the transformative work of Christ, the preeminence of Christ over all things as he's in charge of everything, in control of everything, how he started everything at creation and holds it together and has transformed us to be like his son and is daily transforming us further to reflect Jesus in a greater and greater way that the world might see us. It's all by grace. It's all by his grace. So by God's grace, remain faithful. We have this closing list of people that he was greeting. All but one of them that we know of stayed faithful. By God's grace, we can remain faithful. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the list of these people here. Uh, Sometimes it's, it's an interesting thing to read through all these different names. But to hear the stories of who these people were and how you worked in their lives and what you did and 
how they remained faithful or didn't. Lord, that's such a challenge to us then to remain faithful and to follow you. And it's all because of your grace. You give us the strength to do this, and we're not for your grace. We could do nothing. So we, thankful, or we, we thank you for your faithfulness to us, and I pray that we might stay faithful to you. In Jesus' name, amen.